You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Well, as we look at verses 32 through 37 and then get into chapter 5 today, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a communal living scene of the church. And we're not going to get really in-depth into uh, the whole communal living situation uh, because we got into that about three weeks ago uh, when we looked at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through uh, 47 and how it parallels Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 32. And so <clears throat> did an in-depth look at the living, giving church and how you know that process was uh, not permanent, not universal, uh, but more of a temporary instance or as the Holy Spirit would lead throughout history. So if you weren't here for that study, listen to it. Definitely would encourage you to make it a practice if you're gone on a Sunday or a Wednesday uh, to get on the website, download the MP3, throw it on your iPod or your MP3 player. You go on the trips as you're running or whatever. Just listen to that, you know, because uh, they're messages for our body. And I just don't want you guys to be missing meals, you know. I want you guys to be up to date on what the Lord is speaking to all of us. So uh, definitely you'll want to get Acts chapter 2's The Living Giving Church off of uh, the internet. So, But as we look here in verse 32, it says, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And I just, before we move on, want to touch on just the unity that was in the early church. You might underline that they were of one heart and one soul. You know, just like Paul says, you know, man, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, you know, and, and the same, you know, goal and, uh, you know, what a beautiful thing we have in this fellowship here, man. I don't want you to miss just the work of the spirit that God has done here before I came here. Uh, there's just a beautiful unity amongst us. Um, you know, one heart, one soul, because we all have Jesus and we love Jesus with all of our hearts. And man, that's better than any earthly family can have, you know, so blessed last night to be out at a barbecue and just some people that I haven't spent a lot of time with and just the fellowship and the camaraderie and the laughing and the encouragement, you know, uh, it's just a, a beautiful thing to be part of a, of a united church. So blessed by this body. And, you know, I have a friend, really close friend of mine that, uh, the same month I moved over here, uh, he moved from Corvallis to uh, a little town in Montana that has about 250 people in the town. And then in the outskirts, about 700 people total. And uh, when he moved over there, it's a step of faith. He didn't know it until he got there, but there was major division in the church where uh, the financial board and the elders were uh, warring against each other with absolute hate and bitterness absolute flesh of screaming and yelling and slamming doors and hate mail. And, you know, and he just came to the middle of this and, you know, said, Lord, maybe you've brought me here to, to work peace in the midst of this congregation and, and bring people out of tradition and back to your word. And, and after a year of being there, he's just, you know, had death threats against him and uh, people storming up and yelling at him and services and just so much. And I've, you know, I've just been so brokenhearted and wept over the situation he's in and uh, we've prayed for him at the pulse and uh, you know and he's just told me Rory you don't know how good you have it in Prineville 
you know, and I was just like, oh, I do. No, you don't, you know, and uh, he just said, man, I just long for even one guy that even cares enough to pray for me or encourage me or, you know, have take on a ministry in the church, but there's not even one man that I have to do that. And so, you know, so mindful of him and, you know, he's resigned three different times uh, only to have you know, a few uh, beg him to stay. And so he's just, Lord, maybe you've just given him one more chance to repent. You know, and when it's a town that small, you don't go down the street without, you know, getting yelled at and stuff like that. So his name's Chris Cross. So if you think of Chris Cross, uh, pray for him. Just a dear friend. I can't wait for it to have him here so you can meet him and have him teach. But, um, you know, it's just something to learn and to understand and to be aware of that the enemy wants to rip apart our unity, wants to rip apart the love that we have for each other, doesn't like what's happening here and is going to try to do everything that he can uh, to destroy that and to undermine that and to bring divisive people into our fellowship. And so be aware and have open eyes and open minds. If you start to hear anything that sounds uh, you know, divisive, You know, don't give any room uh, for gossip in this church. Don't give any room for people who are opinionated or even in your own heart for an opinionated heart. Romans tells us don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't be wise in your opinion. Have humility. You know, don't give room for a critical heart or a murmuring heart or an I could do that better heart tearing down somebody rather than building them up or backbiting against somebody. Just guard against that. Be aware that the Lord wants to use that type of an attitude or that type of a heart, you know, to to bring division and to bring a church split because he doesn't like what's happening in this family that we have here as we all with unity of heart and unity of soul try to further the gospel and the glory of God and make his kingdom bigger. So be aware, like attack dogs, be ready to jump on that. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, you know, a a divisive church is a carnal church, that it's just a sign of sin in your midst. And so, man, the minute you start, you know, hearing something start up, put it to death. You know, there's ways to put things to death that aren't condemning, you know, that, you know, just, you know, if you hear it in yourself and you start to say something about somebody or your pastor or the leadership, just, just, oh, you know what? I don't know what I'm saying. I have no room to speak. I haven't talked to Rory or the elders about this or any, I haven't talked to the person that's offended. You know, I'm sorry. I just caught myself that I started to slander that person or gossip or man, I can't believe that the enemy was trying to use my mouth that this, this little mouth that kindles a great forest fire, James tells us, you know, uh, I can't believe the enemy was just about to use my mouth. I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta step back and not finish that sentence. So how are you doing today? You know, um, you know, make it be funny about it, you know, just recognize the sin, cut it off and move on from there, you know, and, uh, how, the, how the enemy wants to sow that division. You know, even as, as we take great steps and move towards the 242 groups, I've just noticed in Corvallis that when great things are happening, the temptation is to, you know, murmur and complain. And man, I'm all for, come talk to me. That's awesome. But amongst yourselves, don't murmur, complain, pray. My pastor, Robin Corvallis, he's my mentor. I talk about him all the time. I hope you don't get sick of that. But love my pastor, Rob. He's just poured so much into me. And he always would say to the church in Corvallis, you know what? It's a whole lot easier to be critical than it is to pray. 
You know, it's a whole lot easier to come in right at nine o'clock and sit in your comfortable air conditioned seat and, you know, have your little checklist of how the service is going. Well, Stuart missed that note or, you know, uh, that drum beat was off or, you know, that guy looked nervous or, you know, man, Rory's hair looks extra pointy today or he's kind of young. How does he have any room to talk on that issue? Or, you know, and we're just, we're critical. You know, we've got our checklist and I'm going to leave the church, you know, seven out of eight check marks. Let's get out of here, you know, and man, instead of being critical, pray. I'm a man, I'm fallible, you know, all of us are. And man, if you see me getting tired or, man, two services, that's a lot on a body. You know, pray for me. Be quick to pray. It's so easy to make fun of the pastor or the direction that you sense the church is going. And just, man, pray, you know. Voice concerns directly to us, but pray. Make sure you're lifting us up in prayer. And let's just look there at verse 33. And with great power... The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. You might underline, uh, we're going to read the word great here three times today. First of all, great power, with great power, the apostles gave witness uh, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So what was their message? Man, if you, if you aren't getting it yet, that's okay. You know, we're all growing, but hopefully you're getting it that the resurrection Man, the resurrection. Put an R next to every reference to the resurrection. Your, your Bible's getting full of little R's already in chapter 5. Major part, and as I was studying again for this week and came across another reference to the resurrection, don't ever let that get old. Never got old to the apostles, you know? But I was just thinking, man, what if one of the great conversational starters uh, in a, to witness or to share with somebody is bring up this incredible thing of someone rising from the dead. Hey, have you ever, what do you think about someone rising from the dead? Oh, that's crazy, man. If I saw something like that, that'd be intense, you know? Hey, did you know the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead? Wow, I think I've heard that, but I never really stopped to think about it. Yeah, did you know that there's incredible evidence that Jesus is not dead in a tomb in, in Jerusalem, but that he's alive today? Well, what kind of evidence? Well, you know, some journalists have sought out to disprove the resurrection, and they ended up coming back, becoming Christians, uh, because the evidence was overwhelming. In fact, some incredible um, lawyers and judges and scholars would say that it's the best proved fact in all of history. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Hey, what would it mean to you if Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I don't know. Would it mean that everything he said was true? Well, yeah. I mean, if the guy rose from the dead, that's that's some pretty powerful, you know, confirmation to whatever he was saying. Yeah. Do you know, he said he was God. You know, it just man, it just goes on and on and on. You know, who doesn't want to talk about someone raising up from the dead? That's people go by movies that have that kind of stuff in it. You know, let's talk about it. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to give us the power to talk about Jesus rising from the dead. So, you know, great power was upon them. Where do you think that great power came from? The, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, of course, not a wrong answer, you know, but, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit that was sent by Jesus, the third person of the Trinity. As Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So great power was given to these apostles as they spoke about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And great grace was upon them all. That word great again. Great grace. Not only are are we saved by grace, and we all know Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it's by grace, a free gift that we're saved, not by any works that we've done. But Paul tells Timothy, be strong in the grace. 
You know, be strong in the grace. You know, extend grace to others. We're really great about receiving grace to ourselves, but what about being gracious to others, being merciful to others, giving people things, love and attention and encouragement and, you know, perhaps material things. They don't, they didn't earn it. You're not going to get anything back from them. Man, you're just being gracious. A sign of the early church was great grace. And I would say that that great grace came from the same source, the Holy Spirit. You know, it was his power that enables us to extend grace to others. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of all the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one or each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite uh, of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at uh, the apostles' feet. So we read of this man, Joseph or Joseph, and then he had a nickname. Don't you love nicknames? <laughs> you know, uh, his was son of encouragement or Barnabas. And why do you think his name was son of encouragement? Probably because he was an encourager. That was a trait that was just evident in this guy's life. He just dripped with encouragement. Can you picture this guy? Uh, in the early church, going around encouraging people, what do you think that would look like? You know, probably had a smile on his face, you know, the joy of the Lord, just putting a, a grin there, probably just searching out and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to the people that were downcast, you know, to the couple that, you know, just had a, a down look, you know, to, to the people that he knew were going through trials or were afraid or, you know, he would beeline to them across the synagogue or across the market square. Oh, there's Barnabas again. There's Joseph again, the son of encouragement. He's over there encouraging. He's over here encouraging. Man, I just saw that lady who had a, a tear down her face, encouraged by Joseph. Now she's smiling and now she's over encouraging somebody else. You know, man, how we need Barnabas's sons and daughters of encouragement. Such a blessing to have a guy like that around. I'm very thankful for some of you in this church that are little Barnabases. You know, this doesn't puff the church up day. You know, I'm just very thankful for you guys. A lot of you, man, you just, every time I see you, you've, you've got an encouraging word for me. And I, you, you don't know how valuable that is. It's more valuable than gold or silver. A word fitly spoken. Always building somebody up. We just need those Barnabases. And you know, just to confess to you, I, as your pastor, I go through seasons of discouragement. You know, uh, you know, my mom always taught me just to have a smile on my face, you know. And so I always have a smile on my face. But man, there's just times where I'm down. I'm discouraged. It could be uh, spiritual warfare for sure. It could be words spoken to me that are part of spiritual warfare. But man, there are just times that depressed, discouraged, down, not wanting to teach that Sunday because I just, I just don't have it. You know, and Lindsay will see me and what's wrong? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Are you sure you're really quiet? Uh, yeah, I'm okay, you know. And then, then at like midnight when I can't sleep, honey, will you pray for me? I'm really discouraged, <laughs> you know. Man, finally to confess that, that, you know, it's such a good thing to share and have someone else bear the weight. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was just so discouraged, couldn't study on a Saturday. And a brother came by my house and, you know, we were talking and, you know, talking and having fun and talking. And, you know, I'm hurting inside. I'm discouraged, but I'm putting on the smile, you know, and, 
and as his family gets in the car, I just stop the door from shutting. I go, pray for me right now. I'm discouraged. <laughs> and he shut the door and he just put his hand on me and he just prayed for him and he just spoke into my life. And I needed that. I need that from you guys and you guys need that from other people. Man, let's have open eyes and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Who's down? Who's alone? Man, I am the kind of guy, I don't want to see anybody sitting by themselves in here. You know, I'm the kind of guy I go to Wendy's and somebody's sitting by himself and I want to go sit with that guy and talk with him. You know, my wife finally told me one day, do you ever think maybe he wants to be by himself? You know, and I'm like, that can't be true. You know, <laughs> so I go and totally, impo- you know, I don't want you guys, you know, when you see someone sitting by themselves, go sit by them, love on them, build friendship, you know, uh, have an open eye to who might need that encouragement. You know, maybe you would just have on your heart to, you know, during a time of invitation to come to the gospel, you know, maybe you would just have an open eye to who might raise their hand and receive Jesus. And, and you know, you could make a beeline to that person right after the service. Yeah, I know Rory was saying something about every eye closed and head bowed, but I just am so excited for people to come to Jesus. I looked, I'm sorry, but, you know... Uh, I just want you to know, I'm so glad you came to Jesus today. I'm so glad that Jesus came to you and you just, you know, you let him, you know, come to you. You received him. I'm so excited. Come to lunch today. I want to tell you all about Jesus. I want to tell you all about being a Christian. I want to give you my email address, my Facebook. I want to be there to support you. Could you imagine the disciples we'd be making if we were all Barnabases encouraging the newly saved? You know, keep your eye open for people that it's their first time here. You guys remember what it was like to go to a church for the first time? I moved a lot as a kid. So I went to new schools, hated first day of school, new school, so hard. New churches, so hard, so uncomfortable. You just want to leave. I just want to get out of here. You know, it's so weird. That guy's really weird up there talking. You just want to, that's probably the reason you want to get out of here. No, look for the new people. And man, as soon as the greeting time starts or it's, you know, go and introduce yourself to them and invite them over for lunch. Be proactive in your encouragement and, uh, and, you know, uh, and fostering those relationships. Lord, give us the eyes, you know, uh, but what's the opposite of encouragement, discouragement? You know, I, I hate to tell you this, that's not a spiritual gift, <laughs> you know, the son of discouragement. You know, I have a, a friend that uh, really close since I was in uh, school, we don't talk a lot, but every time we see each other, it's like old times. And when I first got married, uh, he'd hang out with me and my wife and Lindsay and I always like to give little jabs and little pokes at each other and make fun of each other. It's what we do. It's fun, you know, and uh, and Lindsay's a lot better at it sometimes, you know, and my buddy Ivan noticed that. And so he started to call her, Lindsay, you're a little ex-Barnabas, <laughs> you know, and so that became their new joke, you know, hey, ex-Barnabas, you know, don't be an ex-Barnabas, you know, there's a, a show out there where uh, there's a, a, a lady called Debbie Downer, you know, and uh, any situation she's in, she just, you know, pours a bucket of cold water on anybody's joy, you know, they'll be sitting around the dinner table and someone will say, I got a new cat yesterday, it's so cute, it's a little kitten and I just love it so much. And she'll say, did you know that feline leukemia is the number one cause of deaths in America, you know, whatever. And then the trombone will go, wah, wah, and it'll zoom into her face, you know. And in the church, sometimes there's just a bunch of Debbie Downers everywhere, you know. Man, I'm really full call into this ministry. Oh, they'll never let you do that. You know, just we're so discouraging sometimes, you know. Oh, that won't happen. Or ah, frankly, you don't really have that gift, you know, <laughs> whatever. And it's like, man, do we need to speak the truth and love to each other? Yes. 
Man, let's pray, guard our tongues, Lord, from being discouraging, you know. Uh, you know, let's, let's at least wrap our arms around a person and pat them on the back before we stab them. You know, you know let's get rid of ex-Barnabas. Lock him in the closet, okay? But here we see this Barnabas, this son of encouragement, Joseph, selling some land on the area of Cyprus, which was an island in the Mediterranean. So pretty substantial, uh, landowner, you know, that sells this land. He was a Levite, Old Testament. Levites weren't to own land. And so, you know, perhaps he was just feeling like the Lord saying, hey, you know, it was good enough in the Old Testament. It's good enough now. Give it up. You know, uh, who knows, but sells it. And notice he, he came and he brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. We read that a lot. You know, it's a good place uh, to lay our resources as the apostles or as the leadership, you know, is aware of the needs uh, in ways to reach the community for Jesus. Um, brings us to chapter 5. It all leads into this experience with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Oh, isn't that great? Following Barnabas's example, uh-oh, <laughs> and he kept back part of the proceeds. He kept back part of the proceeds. The language of kept back shows us their motives, that they were secretive or uh, fraudulent or deceitful in the way they brought this uh, proceed. They kept it back secretly, uh, counterfeitly. And it says that his wife was also being aware of it. They brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the wife was aware of this uh, fraudulent, secretive, lying, hypocritical activity as they sold the land. Verse 3 tells us it was land. You know, they sell it and they come and bring it at the apostles' feet. And the issue was what they were, they were making it seem like they were giving everything when really they were giving a percentage of it, some percentage. We don't know what. But they were lying, and it says that his wife was aware of it. And man, if I could just speak to you wives, man, if you're aware that your husband is in sin, you are doing yourself and him a great disservice by covering that sin. You know, don't be afraid of your husband. You know, it's okay to Galatians 6, 1, you know, if you see a brother in sin and you're living with the Lord, you know, in a spirit of gentleness, restore him, restore her. But this garbage of married couples covering up each other's lies, that is not the Lord's heart. You know, I've, I've lived an experience of seeing uh, a, a man sit there and bold faced lie while his wife just, you know, smiles with a tight lip and says, yeah, 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 to everything, you know, and man, nothing wrong with saying, you know what, that's not exactly how it happened, honey. You know, let's remember how it happened. This is, and this is the situation and you know, love you, but you know, uh, just, you might've forgotten you're getting senile or something like that. Nothing wrong with speaking the truth, you know, and, and yes, there's to be submission in the marriage relationship, really submission between both the husband and the wife but then there's an an order there given to us that the wife's to submit to the husband as to the lord and we studied last week that it's better to submit to god and obey god than man and so if your husband or your wife or anyone asks you to disobey god uh then you need to obey god and and disobey the uh the the loved one or the other 
relationship. So, uh, you know, the wife was aware of it. Sapphira was aware of it. And wives, just be the, uh, the voice of reason to your husband. And, you know, who knows why they even gave? You know, some people think that they were more prominent members of the church. And that, you know, uh, they felt threatened when they saw Barnabas giving a huge uh, gift, you know, and other people giving gifts. And, you know, a little portion of the island of Cyprus is sold. So, you know, what should we do? We're Ananias and Sapphira, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they just felt threatened. Like, well, honey, we should give something. You know, well, we own that property over there. Well, we could give. And, you know, well, let's just keep back a little bit of it because, you know, we need it, you know, the economy and this and that. And, and okay, well, uh, whatever it was, they were deceitful in their actions as they came and laid it at the uh, apostles' feet. So the issue is they made it seem as though they brought the whole part of the proceeds. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the, of the price of the land for yourself? And so here we see a bold Peter. I mean, it takes some guts to confront somebody. It takes guts to confront a brother. You know, we're told that, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And how often we just want to never want to say anything that's going to offend anybody, you know, and uh, but really the Lord says, man, there is error in that brother's life and they need to be corrected. Who's going to who's going to correct them? You know, you're, you're their brother. You're the best friend. You're going to you can speak into their life, the truth and love to gain the brother. And, uh, you know, and Peter just very bold and very bluntly again just says, you know, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You know, and, and what we see here is a spiritual gift in action. We read about it in First Corinthians chapter 12. It's the gift of the word of knowledge. A word of knowledge is a gift that after you speak it, the person says, how did you know that? How did you know that? You know, one of my favorite pastors calls it information taken off of the divine hotline. You know, because you're given information about a person or a situation that nobody else knows but that person and God. You're given this information by no natural means, by only the, the spirit of the Lord speaking into their heart. And you know, it's an incredible thing when somebody speaks a word of knowledge into somebody's life. Because they're confronted with, holy cow, the Lord is real. Only he knows what's going on. And he just spoke this into this person's life that I could be encouraged or delivered or whatever, you know, outcome needs to happen. You know, and, and you know, it's with all spiritual gifts, it takes boldness and faith to use them. You know, it, it wasn't easy for Peter to just say, say this, you know, what if I'm wrong? What if, what are you talking about? Lying to the Holy Spirit, you jerk? How dare you accuse me in front of, you know, I didn't do that, you know, but sense the Holy Spirit prompting him to say this and he took a step of faith and he said it and he was right. Nobody else would have known. How would anybody have known that this wasn't the price that they had gotten uh, for the land? And we'll see this gift of the word of knowledge given later on in the book of Acts. But uh, we see that uh, there in verse 3 that Satan filled his heart. Satan uh, filled or Satan filled his heart uh, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, you know, he says, while it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? You know, so why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Ananias, it was always yours. No one asked you or commanded you to sell it. It was yours before you sold it. After you sold it, it was yours. So why would you, you know, 
purpose in your heart that you were going to lie to God. You know, no one made you, nobody twisted your arm, nobody forced you. And, uh, you know, they, they wanted to appear as generous as Barnabas. But notice, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? There's a repetitive word, repetitive word, uh, heart. That it all began in Ananias' heart. And the root of it is satanic. You know, when we lie, there's no little white lies. There's no little just, oh, we just won't tell them that we're keeping a part back, but we'll look like we're giving the whole thing. It's just a little white lie. It's a little deceptive, but no one's going to know who's it going to hurt. We'll see in a bit here who's it, who it's going to hurt. You know, But this little white lie was demonic in influence, and it had its root in this man's heart and in his wife's heart. In James chapter 1, verse 13, if you'll flip over there, we kind of have the formula of how sin is brought about. Where does sin come from? If you weren't here for the study on the, in the doctrine series about four or five weeks ago, uh, we looked at the fall of man and where sin came from. So we'll just very shortly look at that again. James chapter 1, verse 13. You know, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So, you know, Ananias couldn't say, uh, God told me to deceive like this. No, it wasn't God. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And we see this pattern in the original fall with Adam and Eve. When the little sneaky snake comes up to Eve and says, you know, did God really say that you can't eat that? You know, and she reasons with the devil for a little bit and, you know, succumbs to the temptation. Then it says when she saw that the fruit was beautiful and that it would bring about wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil. So she has desire and I want that. I want that beauty. I want that wisdom. I want to be like God and know good and evil. Desire is conceived and it crunch gave birth to sin and to two crunches, Adam's crunch, you know, and then sin conceived and brought forth death. And there in Genesis three, you read the whole account that, uh, uh, all of the three involved were cursed and Adam was told that from the dust you came and from the dust you'll return because you're going to die now, Adam. The wage of sin is death. And not only are you going to die, but now I have to kill an animal to cover your sin, to cover your body. And that's a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, going to be slain to cover our sin. And not only that, Adam, but in Revelation 20, we read that there's an eternal death now for anyone that doesn't receive that atonement uh, from the blood of Jesus. So uh, death was the result of that, just like James tells us in the formula for sin. But he says there in verse 4, you've not lied to men, but to God. You know, notice the repetitive words, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. You know, he's lied to the Holy Spirit. This is a proof text uh, for the deity of the Holy Spirit. In lying to uh, the Holy Spirit, he's lied to God. You know, we see that uh, the personality of the Holy Spirit, that he's not a force, but he's a person that can be lied to, can be grieved. He's a distributor of gift and so much more that we've gone over uh, early on in the book of Acts. And so, you know, it wasn't the apostles that were lied to. It wasn't the early church that was lied to. And sure, Peter might say, man, I'm kind of bummed at you. But ultimately, it doesn't even matter what we think. Man, you sin against God. You've fallen short of God's righteousness. 
And you know what? That's just the case with all of our sin. You know, our sin isn't against this person or this thing or this, you know, spouse or, you know, while it is in a a tiny fraction of it, man, ultimately it's against God. And in Exodus chapter 16, you read about the people murmuring and murmuring and complaining. You just constantly read about it as the children of Israel murmur against Moses and complain. Uh, you know, I love that phrase murmur. It's onomatopoeia. You know, it sounds like it is. You know, murmur, 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 You know, that's what was going on. Constant complaining. And, you know, at, so, at one point Moses was just like, Lord, kill me. If this is going to continue and people are always complaining, just kill me right now. I can't take it anymore and he ended up saying to the people you know what in exodus 16 he says your complaints aren't against us but they're against god your sin right now it's not it's not about me you're sinning against god and david knew that in psalm chapter 51 you can flip there right after david you know spent a period of hypocrisy and lying about a year's worth of time uh you know nathan the prophet came and confronted him on his sin of murdering uriah and stealing his wife and having fornication with Bathsheba. And, you know, that confrontation, that boldness to confront the brother uh, resulted in David's repentance. And in Psalm 51, you can read just a beautiful psalm of repentance. And it starts out by saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Then listen what David says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Wait a second. He murdered a guy. Set him up in battle so that all the other troops would fall out in retreat and he would get hit by the archers near the wall. You know, he, he schemed and he plotted and before he murdered Uriah, he got him drunk and he lied and he was deceptive and he, you know, fell into sexual sin with uh, Bathsheba, tried to cover that up. The sin wasn't against Bathsheba. The sin wasn't against Uriah. The sin wasn't against his other wives. The sin was, who was it against? It was against the Lord. That's really uh, what matters. And of course, the fallout from that is the sin to other people and destroys relationships and so much. But Ananias here is just confronted with his lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. Didn't matter that he lied to the church. And you know, lying is something that Christians sure struggle with. And by Christians, I mean me. You know, I'm not above that. I'm not above exaggeration. I'm not above leaving things out. I'm not above being a deceiver. You know, and I'm really thankful to just see the Lord sanctifying me. And as I begin to tell a story, you know, I love to tell stories. I love to, you know, someone told something really cool. So I'm going to one up them, you know, and here's your story. Here's my story, you know, and, you know, and it's going to be really good. And then as I start to tell a story or something, I'll just be like, that's not really how that happened. And just in the same way, we should catch ourselves from gossiping or backbiting. We should just let's be humble with each other. Stop ourselves from lying. You know, anyways, I had a boat once and it was really cool. Wait, what am I talking? Guys, I don't know. I never had a boat. (laughs) You know, that's what a sinner I am is I led myself to believe I had a boat, you know? And so I'm really sorry about that, you guys. Please forgive me. Uh, So how about those mariners, you know? I mean, let's be real. And, you know, Colossians tells us and Peter tells us we're to put off lying. We're to put it off. We're just, you know, crucify the old man. The old man doesn't like it when we interrupt his little fable. You know, he's put to death. 
you know, let's do that. Let's be quick with each other. Man, I'm sorry. I don't know what I was saying. I, I thought that I had really done that once, but I never did that. I'm a liar. <laughs> you know, there's something so good about catching ourselves in the act and repenting right there. It's, it's good for ourselves. It's good for other people to see. You know, that's a practice that uh, Rob would always do. He would just always stop himself in the middle of, of a lie. I don't know what I'm talking about. Forgive me, you guys. I, you know, I'd said that I did this. I never did that. And it's just been an example to me as well. And so, uh, you know, lying in the Christian, in Christians, let's put it off. Um, and it says there that, uh, verse five, then Ananias hearing these words fell down and breathed his last, fell down and breathed, breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. So here we have the new Testament example of being slain in the spirit. You know, it's there. No, I'm kidding. You guys chill out. Uh, you know, uh, these guys, Ananias, this guy just full blown falls down and has his life sucked out of him, made an example to the rest of the church. And our reaction is, whoa, death really holds back part of the proceeds and doesn't say anything about it. So kill him in front of everybody. Whoa, Lord, I'm not sure that was totally just or totally right. But what we want to see here is the principle of precedence, you know, where God makes one big point for all time. What was happening during this period? It was the early church. It was the baby church. You know, examples were being made and the Lord needed to make one big example of how he felt about hypocrisy and lying and deceit. You know, and, and it says there that after Ananias fell down and died, that fear came upon everybody. You know, Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And man, after they watched, no doubt, a brother they loved, you know, is Ananias in heaven? I don't know. The Lord knows. He was a part of the church. They were around. They were excited about Jesus. I don't know. Only the Lord knows. But, you know, no doubt the, the death of this friend that was around, it wounded them. You know, it was sad. It was an example. And man, I don't want that to happen to me. I'm afraid. I hate wickedness. I hate the sin that, that killed Ananias. And I'm going to hate this wickedness. This fear, this reverence is a healthy thing. We're not talking, you know, uh, horror movie fear. We're talking a deep reverence and understanding for who God is. It's interesting that we can have a father relationship with our God, father-son-daughter relationship, and yet fear him. You know, it's a healthy reverence for him. And it made them not want to lie to the Holy Spirit. You know, First Timothy talks about, uh, you know, not to receive an accusation against an elder unless there's uh, two or three witnesses. And if that it's confirmed that that elder is in sin, then uh, rebuke that elder in the presence of all that the rest may fear. And I've been to those times where an elder has been rebuked in my midst. And, uh, and it just causes us all to say, I don't want that ever to happen to me. I hate sin and I don't want to have it in my life. And so uh, everyone feared after Ananias uh, fell down and breathed his last. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So, you know, they wasted no time. They arose. So they must have been there when it happened. And what's the significance of the young men being there? Probably strong backs, you know, know how to use a shovel well. Uh, but no doubt there was an example to these young men of the consequences of sin. You know how young men talk as they're shoveling and working, especially after something like that. They wrap the body, they drug it out there, and they're, what just happened as they're digging the hole? What, what happened? Apparently he lied to God and God struck him dead. 
oh my goodness. Dude, if you ever hear me start to lie to the Holy Spirit, slap me in the face, man. Don't let me. Okay, yeah, me too. Okay, oh, holy cow, I can't believe this. I liked Ananias, you know. <laughs> and as they're digging, and you know, an example to the young people that there are consequences for sin. And how many older people that got saved later in life just want to say that, you know, I have a, a friend that's in prison for doing a really stupid thing. Six years in prison. And he's written me about four different letters as I was a youth pastor say, you make sure and let those kids know there are consequences for their sin, even if they love Jesus. So he loved Jesus and he is away from his family and is divorced and hasn't seen his little kids in three and a half years, you know, and just you let those kids know there are consequences for sin. They should hate and fear sin, or fear God and hate sin. And so, uh, and so we see just the consequences of this lying, this deception, though there might not have been lying words, their actions were deceptive and they were leading up people to believe something that just wasn't the truth. And it wasn't just lying that was going on. It was hypocrisy going on. And the word hypocrite, it, it's a word that speaks of an actor. You know, an actor who acts like everything's going one way, but really something completely different is going on inside of them. It's two different words, a uh, hippo and crete, uh, hypocrite, and it means a mask wearer. You know, and how many of us Christians, I am a mask wearer. You know, Aaron was like, how are you doing? I'm like, okay, I don't want to have a mask on. Okay, I'm doing pretty good. You know, uh, Don, how are you doing? You know what? I'm really tired. I get really tired after the first service, you know, and I'm so want to be that guy that's like, oh, I'm great, everybody, you know, uh, but yeah, let's be real with each other. Let's take the masks off. Let's not be actors. Let's, you know, let's show people what's going on behind the mask. You know, Abraham Lincoln, old honest Abe was accused of being two faced. And he responded, you know, if I had two faces, do you think I'd choose to wear this one? You know, man, let's get rid of the two facedness. Let's just be real with each other. And, and the sin of hypocrisy is so serious. It just completely derails us like a freight train. George MacDonald said, half the misery in the world is caused by people trying to look rather than trying to be. You know what? I don't expect you guys to be perfect. Don't expect me to be perfect. Let's quit trying to look a certain way for Let's just be real with each other. I mean, man, I'm struggling with sin. I'm just discouraged or I'm sad or I'm just not doing well. Pray for me. You know, or I'm doing good. Praise God. There's awesome stuff happening in my life. Be, let's be real. You know, don't try to look a certain way. Just be who you are. You know, Jesus said, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Because our hypocrisy is like that leaven that just creeps in. Starts out small. Pretty soon we're full-blown hypocrites. You know, and he told the Pharisees, you know, he told us, don't be like the hypocrite. And then he said there in Matthew chapter 23, all of Matthew chapter 23 is, woe to you Pharisees hypocrites. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. And here he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Matthew 23, 27. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You know, you Pharisees, you know, back in the day, they used to try to make a tomb look a little better by painting it white on the outside. That's a nice little rocky outcropping. Till you roll the stone away and there's a decaying corpse in there full of bones and rotting and stinkiness. And that's so much of us. Outward, we're religious. We wear the nice clothes. We've got the mask on and we're waving to everybody. We're doing good, you know, you know, or I'm very righteous. I'm very holy. When inside you are, you're a sinner and there's no righteousness and no fellowship with God going on. You're a stinking, rotting corpse 
on the inside. You know, and those Pharisees, they were the epitome of that. Jesus says, you know, you, you measure out your tenth of your little tiny spices and your little cumin and the mint and all of that. And then you go to strain out your water to get that gnat out. And then you drink a whole camel, you know. He says, that's ridiculous. Quit being a hypocrite. Just be real. You're warned not to be like them. And Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 8 is given a vision where he's told to go into the temple in the outer court wall and to dig, start digging into the wall. So he digs into the wall a little bit and he sees a little door. Kind of a fun little story, huh? And he goes into the door and he's inside of the room. It's the chamber of the elders. And he looks around and there's pornography on the walls and there's idols and there's wickedness and they've been worshiping these things. And then he looks outside and the elders are out there doing their little duty for God, burning their incense out in the courtyard. And the Lord's just like, what is this hypocrisy of the elders? You know, the, uh, the Pharisees, Jesus tells about, uh, you know, the Pharisee that comes to worship and as he comes to worship, there's a tax collector there. And he calls that Pharisee a self-righteous man. And as the Pharisee is there, he's praying. He's saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that man over there. But no, I give my tithe regularly and I do these good deeds and that good deeds. And man, I bet, oh, look at that guy over there, (laughs) you know. And then Jesus pans us over to that guy, the tax collector, hated by the public and hated by the Jews. And the tax collector just says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I have no righteousness in and of myself. Here, mask is off. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, whose prayer do you think God hears? He hears, he says, I bet, I tell you this, that man's going to go home with his prayers answered. Man who humbled himself and took his mask off before the Lord. It is encouraging to see that even Peter, who confronted Ananias on his hypocrisy, uh, later on will himself fall into hypocrisy. You know, kind of, again, blows his candidacy for Pope, you know, not infallible, but uh, a sinner still. Uh, and and he, it says there in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us the story of uh Peter's hypocrisy. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. It says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So Peter, you know, loving the ministry to the Gentiles sitting there, but there's a delegation coming from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians that still have a tendency to be a bit legalistic. And as they come, Peter sees them and he gets up from eating with the Gentiles and pretends like he doesn't even know them. And Paul sees him do it. He also sees him lead away other Christians and uh, and even the son of encouragement. I mean, picture the son of encouragement patting someone on the back, just really encouraging them, you know, big smile and oh, uh, uh, be warm and be filled. You know, I got to get out of here, you know, and Paul just confronted them on that. Very encouraging that even Peter, you know, struggled with that. And, you know, we're told that a righteous man falls seven times a day and yet rises again. Man, none of us are perfect. Man, we just appeal to the tender mercies of David, huh? That David appealed to uh, there in Psalm chapter 51. 
And so, man, let's just put to death hypocrisy, you know. Let's be real with each other. Let's not let that leaven spread in our midst. You know, and Jesus tells us that, you know, there's nothing that's secret that will not be revealed or anything that's hidden uh, that will not be known and come to light. You know, the secret stuff, it's all going to show itself. So don't feel the pressure here to be something that, you know, the Lord hasn't made you yet. You know, doesn't mean just keep continuing on in sin and we'll never deal with that. But it means don't try to be something you're not. Just be real and let's just help each other uh, press on in that sanctification of the spirit. But it's interesting here that Ananias, his name means full of grace, full of grace. And here we see he's also tasting that God is a holy God and God is a just God. Verse seven. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Now, Peter might have said this a little nonchalantly, you know, kind of quizzing her like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, what was that amount for? You know, oh, yeah, this was it for this much. Yeah, it was for that much. Bummer. <laughs> because what Sapphira just had was an opportunity to come clean and repent. You know, and, and daily the Lord gives us uh, new mercies every morning, a chance to confess, you know, a, a chance to get right. And, uh, you know, Proverbs tells us that he who covers a sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so sad to see Sapphira, whose name means beautiful, uh, show her ugly heart here, a sinful heart that is unwilling to repent. We're told by author of Hebrews, man, while it's still called today, don't harden your heart, but get out of that sin. Get out of that sin while it's still called today. And so she, you know, refuses the opportunity to repent. And Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Really? You know, perhaps they were Christians, you know, perhaps they were saved. We don't know. But you guys really got together and thought, uh, I got a good idea. Let's lie to God. <laughs> that seems like a good idea. Really? Uh, and uh, you're testing the spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, uh, burying her by her husband. So, you know, perhaps these young men are just walking in from putting the final spade of dirt on Ananias, maybe a little dirt on their white t-shirt, you know, or whatever. And, and they come in and they're like, oh no, you know, and, and that fear of God level just escalated. Like, this isn't over, is it? You know, when is it going to be over? <laughs> you know, I really want to be right before you, Lord, you know, uh, just that good, healthy fear. And so they uh, drug her out to bury her as well. Now, a sad thing is Ananias probably thought his sin would just affect him. He probably never thought that this little white lie was going to drastically affect his beautiful bride. And, you know, that's one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that your sin only affects you does not affect you. It affects your loved ones. It affects your friends. It affects your church. It affects your community. You know, still dealing with just a uh, sin of a close friend from years ago. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't end. It just doesn't end. And um, your sin will always hurt other people. We see in Romans chapter 5 that, you know, Adam's sin affected the whole world. You know, his sin led to an inherent sin to all of us where we got a sinful nature. In Joshua, we read about the sin of Achan, that 
during the battle of Jericho, uh, when the people weren't to touch any of the spoil after the walls fell down, that apparently Achan saw a wedge of gold and a beautiful uh, garment and he snuck it away and put it under the floor of his tent. And then as they were traveling, they came across this little podunk town called Ai, you know, and everyone was really excited, like, we just tackled Jericho. Uh, we don't need the whole army. Well, just a few of us will go down and we'll take care of this little uh, podunk, podunk town, you know. And as they go down and fight because there was sin in the camp under Achan's tent, uh, 36 men were killed. And they came back and they go, Lord, what are you doing? I'm so confused. You're confusing everybody. What's going on? And the Lord says, there's sin in the camp and you need to go find out where it is. And so they narrowed it down from tribe of Israel to household of Israel to person within that household. And it came down to Achan. And in Joshua chapter seven, you know, Joshua just says, you know, what happened, Achan? And he said, I saw the gold and I saw the rug and they were pretty and I wanted them. So I put them under my house. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he was made an example of, as uh, the Lord said, to have the people stone him. And I think one of the saddest parts of the whole story is that not only was Achan stoned, but his wife and his kids and his animals and all of his possessions and a great heap of rocks was put over Achan. And it's a lesson to us to this day that your sin does not just affect you. In Numbers chapter 16, you read about uh, Korah and how Korah and... uh, uh, Let's say uh, Damon, Dathan, and Abiram. You know, they all thought it'd be a good idea to go and confront Moses and murmur and complain against Moses. And they so they went up to him and said, Old man, you take way too much upon yourself. We're Levites. We should be able to rule the people. What makes you think you get to say everything? And uh, it led to the Lord saying, you know what? I'm just going to consume the whole congregation with fire. And Moses goes, no, 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 no. For one, two, three men, you're going to kill every. No, no, Lord, no. And he says, all right, then you get everybody away from Korah's tent. <laughs> and it's a longer story than that. But the, the basic of it is uh, that Korah, and it says that his little kids all came and stood out of their tent to look what was happening. And uh, uh, Dathan and Abiram, they came out of their tents, the, the leaders of this rebellion, 250 men they led in rebellion. And as they looked around, it says that the ground opened up underneath them. And the whole family and possessions and animals, little kids, little children, bearing the image of Korah, uh, went down alive, it says, into this pit, and then the earth swallowed them up. A lesson that our sin never just affects us. I think King Saul, when he led a genocide against the Gibeonites, didn't think that after his death, there would be a plague in the nation of Israel. And when David would seek the Lord about the plague, the Lord would say, this plague is because of the, the uh, genocide against the Gibeonites. Okay, so he went to the Gibeonites. What can we do to make peace? And the Gibeonites said, give us seven of Saul's sons and we'll hang them. And the Lord said, yeah, that's, that's the cost, the cost for sin. And so seven of Saul's grown men, but at one point they were little boys of Saul's that I'm, I'm sure Saul loved. They hung in the sun and were killed. Very sobering warnings to us that that compromise or that rebellion or that hardening of your heart you know, or going into that place does not just affect you, but affects everyone around you. You know, Proverbs chapter seven talks about a man that was seduced to go in and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, fall into sexual sin with a gal. 
You know, it says at the end, you know, it says, till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Are you guys listening? Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she's cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Oh, I'll never fall into that type of sin. You know, I'm this or I'm that. Or, you know what? They were all strong men. You are not above it. Daily walk in the spirit. Daily just be open and take the mask off. Till the, unless the arrow would strike your liver. It's been said, one of my favorite sayings, you know, sin will make you do what you never thought you'd do. It'll make you go where you never thought you'd go. Make you stay longer than you ever thought you'd stay. It'll make you pay a price that you never thought you would pay. You know, on the lighter note, in the same way that sin affects those around us, so does our righteousness. So does our loving the Lord. I mean, I can't wait till we get to the story of Cornelius and his belief in Jesus led to the salvation of his whole household or Lydia in Philippi or the Philippian jailer, whole households getting saved. First Corinthians chapter seven, you know, a believing wife, even if she's the only believing spouse, you know, there's a, a neat sanctifying work that happens in the home. Something that we can't probably explain on this side of eternity. But man, let's, let's walk in righteousness. And so in closing, uh, verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet. She breathed her last and the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. That reverence. You're telling me that she lied and just dropped dead? Yeah, just dropped dead. Right after he just dropped dead? Right after he just dropped dead. It was crazy. Oh my gosh, Lord, keep me from that. Keep me from lying. And so in chapter 2, verse 33, we see great power. We see great grace. And verse 11, we see great fear. Great fear. And then next week, we'll look at verses 12 through 16, how the purity that happened that day, the purity that was fostered as people cast down their idols and got rid of sin and feared the Lord, the purity resulted in power. And man, don't you want our church to be powerful in this community? Powerful in getting the gospel out there? Powerful for the furtherance of the kingdom? Man, let's just examine ourselves and ask the Lord to remove our masks. Ask the Lord to, you know, show us our sin that we could get rid of it and confess it. Let's get rid of it, you guys, so that our church can be a pure church and a powerful church. And we can put our Bibles aside and have Stuart come on up and let's just put our hearts into an attitude of just responding to the Lord today. And I believe this message is for every one of us. It is certainly 100% for me. So aware as I study of my lying, of my hypocrisy, of pride, of gosh, just so many failures and falling short of God's righteousness and glory. And Lord, we just pray that in this place, people would turn from their sin. Lord, that they would repent. Those that have never been saved before, those that aren't saved, Lord, that those would repent and be converted, that times of refreshing could flow from them, from the presence of the Lord. Lord, today, may people see their desperate need for a savior. Lord, may they sense the spirit just moving in their heart and convicting them and showing them their need for a savior and drawing them to respond. And Lord, may they not turn away and harden their heart today, but may they respond and say, yes, Jesus. Yes, I need you. If that's you today, just say yes to Jesus. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.